if you took the emotion and the compassion and the care out of that equation and you were making widgets and somebody was buying widgets, then economically sustainability wouldn't be there. Because veterinary professionals are, I mean, everybody's always amazed when I tell them how, how low veterinary salaries are. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm super excited to be joined by the Chief Executive of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, Lizzie Lockett. Lizzie, originally from a farming background in the north of England, is an accredited PR practitioner with the Chartered Institute of Public Relations and holds a degree in English Language and Literature from St John's College, Oxford. She joined the Royal College in February 2005 as Head of Communications and later Director of Strategic Communications, where she was responsible for all of the college's communications and public affairs functions. She was also responsible for jointly managing the Innovative Vet Futures, an initiative that has been instrumental in shaping the recent direction of VetMed in the UK. In autumn 2014, Lizzie helped set up the Mind Matters initiative, which aims to make a difference to the mental health and well-being of members of the veterinary team. Following success in these roles, she was appointed to CEO November 2017 of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, a challenging role for which she has performed admirably, winning plaudits from many quarters for helping to steer and modernise the executive branch of this old British institution at a time when multiple wrecking balls of change are sweeping through the industry. Now, just before we jump into the episode, let me drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Vetex Thrive Community. If you are a young vet looking to find your feet in veterinary medicine, grow your confidence, avoid burnout and beat your inner imposter, then VetX Thrive is for you. As a member, you'll receive 12 success skills training modules, access to experienced mentors wherever you are in the world and incredible toolkits to help you thrive in your career. A year-long membership of this community is available for just $275. And if you use the promo code PODCAST, you will get a further 10% discount. Head over to vetxthrive.com to redeem this offer and take control of your career. Now back to the show. For someone in such a prominent position, it was refreshing to hear that she was open, frank, and as typical for someone hailing from the proud English county of Yorkshire, direct with her opinions and knowledge. She's smart, sharp as a knife, and most importantly, clearly cares as much about the people in veterinary medicine as she does the animals we sworn oath to protect. This is a conversation I know you are going to enjoy. So, without further ado, I give to you my conversation with Lizzie Lockett, CEO of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So I am here today in swanky, just west London, isn't it? It's sort of just along from Victoria train station, little train hop up to London, it's always nice. And my first ever visit to Belgravia House, Horsfury Road, of course the home of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, aka the veterinary police. <laughs> I'm really honoured to get to spend some time now with the CEO, Lizzie Lockett. So Lizzie, welcome to Blunt Dissection. Thank you very much for having me. I'm hopefully not straying too far out by, I'm not getting thrown out immediately for sort of calling you the veterinary police, am I? Not, not straight away, no. It's great to be here. I've got quite a long list of questions I would love to dive in. And in true you know, Blunt Dissection style, there'll probably be zero structure and and hopefully lots of insight and amusement along the way. But I always like to start with the most important questions first. And you seem like you've got a thing for chocolate. 
I don't know how you discovered that, but I do have a bit of a thing for chocolate, actually. I think one of the best presents that I've ever been given was a chocolate making course. So you hear that anecdote about um, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, you feed him all his life. I think that was the rationale going through my friend's heads when they bought me that course. And so I learned how to make chocolates. And it's probably one of the things that I do where I just forget about work because it's quite difficult and it involves a level of manual dexterity which actually is not innate in me so I have to try really really hard not to screw it up. Oh I like to I want to hear more about that and, and I'm absolutely certain that there's very few people listening to this podcast don't like chocolate so tell me. A few people do not like chocolate and I kind of think it should be a question I should ask at interview because frankly I'm not sure I should be employing people who don't like chocolate because that's not not a normal thing. Now are you a chocolate snob and you're a chocolate purist as in you know milk chocolates the the beast? No so I don't make chocolate I make chocolate so you use the couverture which is like little beads of chocolate and then you have to temper it and make the filled chocolates. I'm a complete chocolate tart I have to say I'll eat any <laughs> kind of chocolate. Most people think that when you say you make chocolates that you will be only eating 90% single estate Ecuadorian something other but I'm more than happy with a bar of galaxy or even cooking chocolate if that happens to be all there is in the house frankly yeah oh I see that's fascinating stuff you obviously like chocolate but it was also enjoyable it's actually an interesting thing to you know a lot of people and I did the last episode I published a blunt dissection um, was with the wonderful James Greenwood and one of the themes that came out of that was he liked veterinary medicine when he started being a vet it started to weigh on him a bit because it, it became this all-encompassing thing. And the same with his ceramics. D- did the process of making the chocolate make the chocolate more fun, more appealing? Did you have a, like, that sounds a weird question to ask the CEO of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, but my fascination is always with people. Did it enhance your experience of chocolate or? So honest answer is temporarily, I don't want to eat the stuff ever again after I spent two days. So at Christmas, for example, I make about 30 boxes, usually with a theme. So one year I made a totally edible chocolate Christmas dinner. One year it was themed around the 12 days of Christmas. Um, a totally edible chocolate Christmas dinner. Yeah, so it started off with a chocolate quail's egg and there was a chocolate Bucks Fizz truffle. I then had a chocolate nut roast, a marzipan parsnip, a carrot ganache. We had, I can't, there was other vegetables as well. We then had chocolate Christmas pudding, chocolate uh, custard, um, finished with an Earl Grey truffle, a cappuccino truffle, even a Christmas cracker, which was a little square of chocolate filled with popping candy. So I do really, really enjoy it. But having spent two days making that, I never want to see another one again. But what I really enjoy about it is that, so I'm one of those classic people. I don't know if you, you know the kind of closed mindset, growth mindset stuff. Yep. So I'm a, cl- a classic, yeah, I'm a classic closed mindset person. And I battle with that all of the time. So if somebody criticizes my work, my first reaction is always a folding of arms. I've now learned over my many years to unfold my arms and to listen and to take heed and to learn, which is really, really key. But there's still always a little nugget of that's my identity because I've always been the clever girl. So always you're a good person because you're bright, right? Chocolate making is involves a whole different set of skills. And if I stuff it up, I'm so curious to learn how and why and so keen to get feedback from people so that I can learn. So it really opened my eyes to how energizing it is to feel like that about something and then to try and take that and put it back into everything else that I do. I know that sounds a bit corny, but it's been really important to do something like that because normally I'm one of those people where if I can't do it brilliantly, I won't even try. No, just because you don't want failure. Don't want, don't even want to Liz, try. This is sounding remarkably similar to a group of people that we might have some form yeah, of relationship funny to. funny that, isn't it? Let's talk about that. I have a huge list of things, but you're tossing up some nuggets that are really interesting to me to explore. And, and the sort of the thought and the concept of mindset 
is something that I've been dwelling on a lot in the materials and the presentations that I'm giving, also in the way that I'm parenting my daughter as she grows up. And I particularly can't help but reflect it back to the current situation we are in in veterinary medicine at the minute. I'll start with what I observed in my daughter cycling and, and what I was, I was really cautious because I thought, oh, oh, here we go. This is the start of the wrong pathway. We took her out cycling, put her on the bike and she immediately fell off of it and didn't do the stabilizers. She was just trying to get the balance thing. And, and, you know, the learning curve almost seemed too steep for her. Fell off, whacked her shins, you know, had a tantrum, decided she didn't want to do it. Left the bike alone for best part of 12 months. And then finally, she started to get a bit more curious and come back to it. So we went out last weekend. We said to her, and I've been working with her to say, be really careful to reward effort and to talk about the value of practice. And the book Bounce by Matthew Said, I think ties in really nicely with that. Just to keep saying, you know, it's great you fell off. What did you learn? And and with a six-year-old, you know, that only goes so far. But just to make sure that it wasn't praising the wrong thing. But we'd made the pact beforehand, and I think I'd bribed her senselessly, probably with chocolate. If her mum's not listening, that would be good. <laughs> and so we went out, and she had a little tantrum, but she got back on it, and she rumbled around, and, and she got a little way. But she clearly didn't get as far as she wanted to get, so in her mind, she sort of failed. So we, we worked with that. I said, it was great. You're on the right lines. Let's come back tomorrow and, and try again. Came back tomorrow, and she went twice as far immediately. And I could see the light bulb ping going off in her head, and I thought, right, that's what I have to do as her father from now for sort of forever. So it's interesting. I think as a veterinarian myself, I was fortunate to be in the bit of the class that made the top echelons very, very possible. And in fact, the middle echelon is quite possible as well. So I was not ever told that often I was the best at anything because it was pretty uncommon that I was. Your pathway in your career, so you're an Oxford graduate, you clearly have set your sights on and, and have had a a great career. I'd love to dig into that closed mindset and how did it serve you? When did you become aware of it? And, you know, just specifically in reference to the, the insight you got from chocolate, when did you first get a sense of, you know, how that was affecting you and how did you start to adapt and change that? Because looking at your CV, you have done a lot of things and moved around quite a lot in different industries. So you have learned and, and done an awful lot of things. I have. I think I'd, I've always had that closed mindset, but I didn't recognize it as a thing and understand that it was a thing until I started working on the My Matters project for the college and reading about some of this stuff. And then when I read about that, it literally was a light bulb moment, you know, literally ding, ding, ding. Gosh, that's me. That's been me all this time, which isn't to say that I hadn't tried to deal with it because I, but I just didn't call it that. So I, I've always recognized that I'm a really difficult mix of I wouldn't say perfectionist because that's a bit hackneyed, but being somebody who really wants to succeed, but also having a real imposter syndrome and a real sense of low kind of um, ability. So classic conversation will go something like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Then somebody will say, well, you don't have to do that. What do you mean I can't do that? Of course I can do that. I'm, I'm done well going to do it. And so, so I almost need somebody to sort of poke me and push me in, into a different direction. But I have always, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where at school, I was in a, a really big mixed comprehensive school. It was a great school up in, in Yorkshire. And I was always in the top one or two in, in my year. And right from being very, very small to my mum had this lovely story. Apparently when I was about 
three, four, maybe I was at nursery school. And mum came to pick me up after my first morning and I was in tears. And my mum had said to the, the nursery nurse, why, why is she crying? Well, there was a jigsaw she couldn't do. And mum was like, well, you know, I'm sure she can come back and do it again. And they were like, no, no, no. She did all of the jigsaws apart from one. It wasn't that there was one I couldn't do. It was one out of 20 that I'd already finished that I couldn't do. And that made me very angry. And so I've always had to balance that with kind of recognizing that, you know, there's that thing about, uh, it's quite hackneyed now, isn't it? That fail is your first attempt in learning. But actually, for me, fail can be my final attempt in learning if I'm not really, really strict with myself. And so I totally recognize that amongst veterinary professionals who have always worked hard it's it's unfair to say that people you know get good grades without trying and you do really work hard but you've had all of that and then when things start to go wrong that that can be really really difficult because you've not built up a mechanism to get yourself back on the bike because you never had to get back on the bike so you don't even know how to do that and I, I see that very much with, with students or if people there's some really interesting work that Rosie Allister has done which says that students can work really well all the way through their a veterinary career but then if they have something that goes wrong in their first job in practice then they start to struggle um, and just to give a personal example I mean cards on the table you know I always thought I would get a first at Oxford I was always told I would get first at Oxford I didn't I got 2-1 I didn't graduate for 10 years so I didn't even want to go near the place I didn't want to pick up my certificate I didn't even want to think about it and if anybody said how did you get on I would say I'd failed. I would literally say I'd failed. They thought I'd failed my degree, which sounds now looking back on it 20, whatever it is, 30 years later, stupidly melodramatic and ridiculous, totally ridiculous. And, you know, very kind of Charlotte Bronte hauling myself across the, the Yorkshire Moors in despair. But actually, in reality, that is how I felt about it. You know, and, and if there was a kind of a lesson to myself at that young age was that actually nobody gives a damn what degree you'd have got. Nobody's ever asked me since. It's never been an issue. You mentioned um, having some mechanisms by which to change and alter that perception. Have you employed any tools specifically in, in your own journey to help shift your mindset? Yeah, definitely. So firstly, if somebody criticizes, so, so for example, my career today has largely been around communication. So a lot of that is about writing and writing is quite a personal thing. So if somebody comes back to you and says, I think you should do it like this, your first reaction is, but that's my writing. That's my writing. But actually is to say, no, this is a communications tool. So how can I better communicate? So try and make it as objective as possible. And then that extends to everything else that you do. So it's not about me doing this thing. It's about this thing being done for a purpose. And if I can improve that purpose, then that's all for the good. I think working in teams really helps with that as well, because you, you start to recognize what your contribution is and what everybody else's contribution is and to really understand the richness of the importance of diversity I suppose the richness of that work and to be fair the higher up you get in an organization the more you understand what you don't know so you have to ask people you can't possibly know everything you know we have a, an organization here of 120 people with lots of different departments with lots of different specialists in I'm not a lawyer I'm not an accountant I can't do all of that so I, the more you you become humble and understand the need to learn from other people the more I think it's easier then to take people's criticism of the things that you've done and to use that as a learning experience and to say okay what can I learn from that and even if your first reaction is physically or mentally to fold your arms, is to unfold them and to change. And I think if people don't do that, then you just become stuck in a, in a particular place. That takes self-awareness to be able to catch yourself in the act. And, and you mentioned a word to me and a, a thing that seems to be very associated with people who are having success is they all seem to have a curious mind rather than a, a judgmental mind. You know, from your, when you got your, your 2-1, like you passed a pretty strong judgment on yourself in that moment by the sound of it. How did you build your self-awareness that that was, in effect, a story that you could later debunk? 
I think it takes time and it takes experience and it takes perspective. There's a little example that I use when I do my mental health talks, which is when you're a small child, the first time you get stung by a nettle. If you remember that, like you get stung and it doesn't hurt straight away and then the pain starts and it mounts and mounts and mounts. And while you're in the process of that, you've no idea that's ever going to end at three or four years old, which is why you boil your eyes out. Later on, once it's happened to you two or three times, you know it's going to happen. You recognize the pain of the crescendo and you know it's going to finish and it won't be there forever. But that's experience that you need to get that. So the same thing, I think, in your working life, which largely this amounts to is, you know, when you have that difficult situation in a meeting and you think everything is going wrong, remember that in five hours you won't feel like that. In five days you won't feel like that. In five months you've probably forgotten that it even happened. Um, and I still do get worked up about things. You know, somebody sends me a grotty email or somebody's rude to me. Straight away your, your instant human reaction is to be upset by that. And then you have to park that and say, okay, experience tells me that person might not like me, but chances are they're not even thinking about me. Right. They're thinking about something that's happened to them. So I think you, you need to take yourself out of the center of the equation and think empathetically from the other person's point of view. Why have they said that thing? Why is that thing upsetting you? And what does, what does it mean? Is it something that you need to address? Is it something that you can park? There's a really nice app that uh, the psychology department of the University of Manchester put together called Pin It or Bin It, where you have an idea that's rumbling and ruminating around in your head and you make the decision to pin it. So I'm going to pin it to my notice board and I'm going to do something with it and I'm going to act on it and I'm going to make a change. I'm going to learn something or I'm going to bin it because actually I let that one go. It's not worth it. And I think that's quite a useful, you know, when, when you're getting upset or ruminating on something, do you pin it? Do you learn from it? Do you bin it? Do you forget it? Move on. That's a fascinating concept. The phrases that are jumping into my mind as, and it's coming a couple of times as you were talking was the phrase, this too will pass. And it's almost like you, you sound like, you know, self-awareness is almost that journey from being the actor on the stage to being the director in the, in the box who's directing everything and how to make that shift. I know one of the things that many inventory medicine struggle with is this concept of compartmentalization. And I think that's probably what you're getting at with the binet. And indeed the pinet, you're dealing with it one, one way or the other. It's, it's something that's quite easy to say. Some people seem inherently better at it than others. I think one of the strengths in my career was being able to, to say or to have ways of being able to go, yeah, I could just switch on and off a little bit more easily than other people. And perhaps that meant I wasn't quite as emotionally invested. But even looking back, I don't think that's true because I had such strong relationships with clients and animals in the exam room. How do you dis disengage? How do you step back from something that is emotionally volatile? Because that's really what we're doing when we're compartmentalizing. And whether it's emotionally or whether it's just the job of veterinary medicine, it feels like we're all, we're all wrapped up in this identity it's like our whole ego is of being a veterinary surgeon and that feels like a really unhealthy thing for us i think it's really really difficult because i think there's pros and cons to compartmentalizing i think there's definitely pros so you need to be able to turn off when you go home you need to be able to have other parts of your life that balance your work personally i'm a bit of a hypocrite and i really really struggle with that so my work is my life i don't have an awful lot around that anymore and i i do struggle with distancing stuff but i can on an individual kind of task by task basis i recognize when something might be winding me up and to try and make some steps to deal with that but where i think it's challenging and this is a, a sort of a more modern concept of of how one can be in the workplace is around that idea of authenticity so I think these days it's a lot more acceptable to bring parts of your home to work and your work to home and your whole self to whatever you do, which is not to say that one ought not to have some professional persona. That's really important, particularly when you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with animals, you've got professional knowledge. But it also means that, you know, if you're 
putting to sleep an animal that you have seen since it was a puppy and now it's 20 year old cat and you've known this animal I'm saying a puppy turned into a cat that's clever isn't it (laughs) 20 year old dog it's okay to have a little cry with your client about that yeah you know that's okay that's not the you being a weak person or if you don't feel that that's appropriate it's okay to come out and say to a colleague you know i find that really really difficult i just want to talk about it or as a leader leading a team to bring some of your weakness into the environment not to the point where people feel that the organization is rudderless because you're running around like beaker from the muppets and you don't know what you're doing but to share you know we've got this thing coming up and this is going to be quite difficult and i think we're going to do this but that might not be the case we might do this we might do the other and i'm going to need your support around that so i think these days in, in the modern workplace it's that balance between compartmentalizing to keep yourself healthy yep. but also recognizing that you can't split yourself into too many pieces you need to bring your whole self to work and that that, that work-life balance phrase can be quite dangerous because that implies that work should always be offset by another thing yeah whereas actually a work-life harmony where you can bring all the things that you enjoy into both things preferring this this phrase work-life integration is yeah it can, be, can be much better i mean not for everybody some people absolutely don't need that and i think we should respect everybody's views on that but yeah i i think compartmentalization can be really useful but only to a point i think where it's really difficult is if you get someone who's putting a mask on every day for the work that they do and this is something that that is a particular area that i would like to somebody to research in the veterinary profession which is about a theory i have around introversion an extroversion within the profession and I have a gut feeling and I may be wrong and people might be howling um, at their phones or wherever they're listening to this from but the idea that if you're a relatively introverted person so the sorts of characteristics that might get you into vet school which is studying hard learning a lot of information being prepared to sit down and just slog then you put yourself into clinical practice which many vets do certainly in the beginning where you're having to be always on dealing with people you know you're as much a um, customer services person as a clinician a lot of the time because communication is key and we certainly know that from the college because a lot of the complaints that we get are around communication issues that's not to say that people who are introverted can't do that brilliantly they can do it absolutely brilliantly but it takes an emotional toll it takes some labor from them and it's exhausting um there's a brilliant book by susan kane about introverts and and she talks about restorative niches you need to build a restorative niche in your day so you can cope with that and i think sometimes the working pattern that we the profession imposes on itself i wouldn't say we impose it from a college point of view runs counter to keeping people healthy in that way does that make sense? It does. And, and so that's an interesting concept, the restorative niches. So can you give any examples that, that Susan would have mentioned or that you've seen people deploying successfully in veterinary practices? I mean, I think in its really, really simple terms, it can be just going to the loo and shutting the door and being in there a little bit longer than you need to be and counting to 10 or doing whatever and just calming yourself down. It may be asking for a 10 minute break between consoles. It may be making sure you go out for a walk at lunchtime. You know, the the restorative power of green spaces is, is amazing. It'll be different for different people, but, but very often it means getting away from having a lot of interaction. It's, I think there's a, there's a bit of a myth that introverted people don't don't take things on or kind of don't absorb things. Whereas actually the research suggests that Susan quotes in her book is that actually introverted people take on everything massively, massively. And then you just become totally absorbed all and you need to process yeah. it. And I find that myself, if I have back-to-back meetings, I need to just literally close the door for five minutes and just to try and process some of that stuff. Otherwise I feel physically um, jangly with it. Sort of overwhelmed. Yeah, as, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not to say you can't do it and you don't get energy from it, actually, but you can almost get too energized from it. Yeah. It's an interesting concept and it throws one into my mind. Two things that have been 
really riffing on in my brain recently. And one is that we're analog beings stuck in an increasingly digital world. And I worry about what that is doing to our mental. But also, we're very sciencey wincey for want of a better phrase. Thank you, Doctor Who. All highbrow here. Beings stuck in sometimes what is a, you know, we're, we're, we almost want things in black and white and we're stuck in a shades of gray is the wrong phrase, but we're, it's actually, it's, it's not monochrome at all. It's an explosion of sort of color and world. And whether that is, it's, it's overwhelming. I think that there's two separate points in there, both of which are really interesting. So the idea of science, so it's only a relatively recent construct that science and arts are two separate things. You know, in the old days, you, the early scientists were also magicians, you know, interested in magic, interested in the natural order of the world around them, interested in literature. So I'm, I'm, I did science A-levels. I thought I wanted to be a vet. Well, we can maybe come on to that. But when I do my talks about mental health, it's a, a patchwork of literature and art and all sorts of random bits of quote and stuff that I've nicked from the internet mainly. But it's, it's, it's nothing to do with science. And people really respond to that because they respond to storytelling. We all respond to storytelling. And, and, you know, if you think about what you talk about um, when you're taking details from a client what do you call that taking history taking a history right a story it's a story you're taking a story from somebody right so i think it's it, we need to really understand the power of, of gathering information power of story yes it's scientific in its basis but it's as much art well, that the royal college of veterinary surgeons is there to promote and support the art and practice and science of veterinary medicine i've got those words a little bit wrong but it's art and science definitely it's not just science it's an art so there is that aspect to it in terms of how you interact with other people and i think we all forget that our peril. I really like the um, American university system where you're encouraged to take a major and a minor. So you can take your veterinary science, but you can also learn about romantic poetry or whatever it happens to be. And I know so many veterinary surgeons who are poets, who are artists, who do all of this stuff alongside the sort of scientific part of their brain. I took science A-levels and an English A-level. So I ended up explaining, I don't know, I remember one particular essay I wrote where I was trying to explain the bonds between the key characters in Shakespeare's late tragic comedies in terms of whether they were exothermic or endothermic bonds. And my English teacher just looking at me like, really, I'm not sure that works. But I could never understand why these things had to be separated because they were theories about life that were just as relevant. Right, and you're just playing with conceptual vessels exactly. to make sense exactly. of the world around you. Exactly. And a, and a really good example of it the other way, actually, is um, so one of my university lecturers, a, a brilliant woman who, who taught me at university, she taught me 18th century literature, went on to be a psychoanalyst. And she's doing really well. She, she, she's an academic. She has um, clients. And I said to her recently, you know, it's such a big leap. And she said, no, not at all. Um, literature is about telling stories and about understanding the messages that people tell you and that they don't tell you, about understanding the shortcuts and the language and what it tells you about what people's brains are doing. And actually, all of those skills that she used to analyze literature have been useful in analyzing individuals' behavior and people's behavior. And you need that as a veterinary surgeon just as much as you need to be able to analyze the data that comes up and the blood test results that come up because there's so much that's unsaid as well. So I think that those sorts of skills are really, really important. But your first point about being analog people in a digital age, you and I are, we're 40 <clears throat> something, um, you're <laughs> younger than I am, but the next generation aren't. So, so that's interesting, but they still need to learn how to deal with uncertainty and to deal with all the things that life can chuck in that can't be put together in zeros and ones, bits and bites. You know, there's a, there's an awful lot of the visceral quality of life that we will see and that vet students will see in the, the blood and gore of the things that you deal with. So it's all very much there and having to then run alongside that sort of technology. And I think it's those changes are really affecting the way we process information. So if you think back to your childhood, there's probably certain memories that really stick out of your childhood. I know there are of mine. Yeah. But what I find when I go back to my dad's house is that there's photographs of those memories. And that's the reason I remember them. Uh. It's because there's a picture. And I've seen that picture 
years and years later. And so those little pearls, you know, like the beads along the, along the chain of your childhood relate to heightened awareness because of those images. Now, if you think you're a child, I don't know how many pictures of your daughter you've got. Thousands. I insane, insane In numbers. Insane number. How does that affect her ability to process her childhood and how those memories settle and sit? I actually think that's a fascinating insight because I was thinking about this yesterday. Her mother is a keen photographer and... She was taking a photograph of her and I was just watching their interaction thinking she interacts differently with a camera than I would have done. She's becoming her own story almost, even at age six. And I thought, that's interesting because, you know, the selfie culture and, and it's just the post-it now. I mean, that's certainly what I'm doing professionally with my life and just creating a documentary of it and hoping that it's interesting enough that people will tune in. But that's really what this next generation are all doing in some way of documenting themselves but they're comparing aren't they that's the that's one of the worries that i have is their comparison with each other and everybody's best bits that are out there and their their filters so i think one of the best pieces of advice i've ever been given relates to that which is and it was from a chap called kevin bolton who um, is a kind of business strategist you can only compare your inside to somebody else's outside and that sounds really basic but once you understand that then most things in life become sensible to you because all of the time, I'm comparing how I'm feeling with how you're looking. So you look to me, calm as a cucumber over there, talking to me. I look over here, I'm quite nervous because this is a, um, a different situation for you. I'm used to being the person who decides what other people say, not having to say stuff myself, right? So you've always got, it's always apples and pears. You've always got that disconnect, which I think is why a lot of people might feel envy or imposter syndrome or jealousy or some sort of disconnect there. And that always used to be the case, but now it's like being completely exacerbated by social media. So all we see is not only the outside of someone, but the carefully created outside of of someone. The one selfie out of 20 that looked nice. It's really heightened that. And the one thing they choose to post and, and everybody is hyper aware of that and is curating their own life. You don't see the pitch of them sitting there in their pants eating ice cream watching some (laughs) rubbish on telly which I'm sure we all do (laughs) that's the next post I will be posting is not a picture of me in my pants (laughs) because nobody needs to see that it will be some self-deprecating hideous Well, another thing is, so it's even gone kind of meta. So now you have these campaigns, I don't know if you've seen them, called the the no makeup selfies. Yeah, yeah. Which is like taking it to the nth degree because you can bet your bottom dollar that that no makeup selfie has been very carefully lit and chosen from 20 others. And filtered. Exactly. That to me is almost like the apotheosis of, of kind of selfie culture, which is the carefully primed, how do I, you know, 10 tips on how to look as though you're not wearing makeup. For me, the first tip would be don't wear any makeup. But I'm a bit of a basic individual when it comes to that stuff. I'm just seeing the notice on your office wall that says life is better in Yorkshire and thinking <laughs> such a spade is a spade piece of advice. A bit like that. So it was Kevin Bolton, yes. was that right, the name? What an interesting piece of advice and what a grounding piece of advice. I get really worried now when I see young vets stressing out and feeling this sense of not being good enough when they're glued to their phone all of the time and they're seeing a, and a lot of the next generation of young vets, particularly the ones that are still at university now, they're building big followings on, on social, um, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. Shout out to all you guys that are. However, you worry a little bit and you can see this starting to feed back in. A lot of the people that I follow who are students are actually are doing a fairly good job of saying, having a bit of a crap time here. This has just been a nightmare. And that's kind of nice to see that putting content out like that. But, you know, you just imagine that is a drop in the ocean compared to the volume of people, you know, take the photograph in front of the dental they've just spent six hours, you know, slogging over 
cried a couple of times, nearly passed out, and you know, five seconds before the selfie, were fetally rocking, wishing they'd never gone to vet school, and then they put the happy filter on, and you think it's not real, it's not life, it's not to be believed, you know. Sort of maybe as a slightly gear crunching segue into the college has always had a challenge with keeping up with technology and where the market moves first as a regulator i think that's probably always a problem that the market pushes a boundary and then regulation follows probably telemedicine is in that sphere right now marketing was probably the one i remember from when i when i was a young vet corporatization clearly has has been another social media is is obviously a, a big deal now and i can see there's there's fuzzy uncomfortable interfaces with posting all of this content that is owned by you know it's 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 pet owners it's graphic images i very much doubt most people have got model release forms and consent but i mean there's really two questions in there one where's the role for compassionate regulation in and maybe it's self-regulation maybe it doesn't need to be from on on high inverted commas air quotes in managing that in a positive way that that helps us and also what do we have to be careful of from a professional point of view when we're, you know, when we're engaging so heavily in, in social media and there's kids there not thinking about their future, posting stuff onto the internet that will be there forever that could have consequences for them? Gosh, there's about a million questions in there. That's a lot. <laughs> I'll try and pick up a few. This is classic. Dave. I'll try and pick up a few. Um, so to the social media stuff, yeah, it is really challenging. I remember having to take a policy to our council, the entirety of our council, to decide whether we ought to have a Twitter account. And it being discussed at the time, and this was obviously some time ago now, that it, it would be infradig for a regulator to have a social media account because it wasn't the kind of thing we should be associated with. Now we get complaints if we haven't put a tweet out about a council decision within 30 seconds of it being made. Right. So it's changed the whole way we communicate. I mean, we used to, back in the good old days, you'd stick out a press release and a week later, somebody might pick it up. You send out a hard copy photo. Now our amazing comms team are sending out a, a press release. They're doing tweets. They're doing podcasts. They're doing videos. They're, you know, they're engaging on forums. They're sending out all of those Twitter campaigns and the infographics. And it's, it's a huge, huge amount of stuff to put out there. And people are consuming media in different ways. So we still have some members of the profession who want everything in hard copy and some who would never know what printer looked like. Yeah, we're how many generations are we spanning across in active lot, service? Yeah. And, and, it, and, and, and so interestingly, like it's not always about the generations either. So we've got some older members of our profession who are highly engaged on social media um, and some younger members who like things in hard copy. So it's, it's not quite as cut and dried as that. But yes, you have got that. So that's, that's a challenge for us in terms of getting things out there and how do we best engage with people. In terms of how vets and nurses communicate around social media, so we do have detailed guidance on that as part of our code of conduct. But I think things are changing so rapidly that setting specific rules is really difficult so for me that kind of stuff has to be more about getting people to understand values than rules so if your values are your principles are you know don't do something that you wouldn't be happy with so if it was think about if that was your cat or your dog or your mum's cat or your dog would you want it to be you know we've just had this really difficult operation and it was really interesting that the cat died in brackets you know would you want that no and, and I think vets are really good at still managing to maintain that strong emotional bond with their animals. So I think that's a relevant comparison to make. And back to being a Yorkshire person, if in doubt, say now. If you've got anything, any butterflies in your stomach, anything at all nagging you to say, I'm not sure if I should do this. If it's social media, don't do it because it's there. It's there. And I absolutely feel for students and school kids now who've got their lives posted up on social media forever and ever. And I'm so glad that stuff wasn't around. 
Oh, God. I, I mean, mean that, that kind of implies I had an interesting past that anybody would want to see on Facebook. Absolutely not. Yeah, the smallest slip could, could be out that's there. That's the terrifying thing. Though, yeah. And, that's one and of I think that like... is. But, but for every time it can be scary, it can be an amazing tool. So if you think about the support that people get. So we have a campaign we run jointly through My Matters with the Doctor Support Network, which is the kind of a vet life for, for human medics. And it's a, a role model campaign where we get senior people who've had mental health issues to talk about their diagnosis, what run up to them disclosing, what help they've got and how they're now flourishing in their career and we know that that's been amazingly powerful one amazing story by professor rob pettit from liverpool university got twenty five thousand hits on facebook loads of real positive stuff and it had a positive impact on him he will tell me as well as well as the people who read it so that stuff is really valuable but you need to put um safeguards around it you need to be really really careful about it and one thing i'm slightly worried about my matters has been really successful in many ways and we're encouraging more and more people to talk so when we started that campaign five years ago vet life has always done brilliant work but people weren't really talking about mental health now any congress you go to there's a stream of mental health there's stuff on well-being danger though now is you talk to a student and they go yeah i understand there's mental health issues in the profession it's more a question of when i'm going to have my nervous breakdown rather than if right. at which point i think oh my gosh what have we done so now we're moving around towards saying this isn't necessarily going to happen to you these are the things to watch out for here's some practical training around resilience and what you can do and these are the things that you can do to keep yourself well so with all of these things whether it's social media or traditional media you have to be really monitoring that message monitoring what you're saying in the way it's being received and how you can continually change what you're doing and i think social media is is part of that i think the way people communicate on social media changes really rapidly what's acceptable changes and we need to be alive to that we've had a few complaints through and there's you know on this issue not a huge number but there has been some you know so it's definitely something that's on our radar it seems like a good place to step away from that multifaceted question into another one and i'm really interested to hear your opinion on you know one of your roles as ceo is to put your head above the parapet and see the bigger picture and just take that forty thousand foot view and really the question is around about where are we headed as a profession you know we've got graduates who seem to have two paralyzing features and again i i'm using a broad stroke or a really I don't like to put people into buckets in this way, but certainly it seems like, but debt is an escalating problem. They seem more paralyzed by fear, whether that is a you know generational parenting issue, whether that's a messaging issue. So you say they're expecting it to be horrible. And we've, you know, it's like the psychology experiments where you tell somebody something's going to be really sore and suddenly they perceive pain much more highly. That feels like that's a thing. But also the messaging and the way that the profession has changed, the, the fear of litigation. I hear people talking about clients being more demanding. Some of those things I struggle to think are anything more than popular things for people to say, but whether they're, they're real or not. But what they are doing seems to be cranking up the level of anxiety in a graduate leaving today. You layer that over... You know, there's a, there seems like there's a, you know, a 20, 30% drop in real earnings compared to when I graduated. This professional drain on talent for, and well, maybe that's a sub question in there as well as to why that's happening, because lots of people have opinions. When you talk about the recruitment crisis, it's not a crisis, it's a disaster that we've got going on in here at the minute, some might say. And I, I worry about where we're headed as a profession. Where with your vantage point of being just, just a beat offset from the front line, what things do you see in what I've said there to be, you, you have a sense that that's true or evidence that that's true? And what things do you think are not helpful or not, things that we say that are not serving us? And where can we take the profession from here to make things better for, for the next generations? And indeed, because it's not just the young generations that seem to struggle. The older generations are struggling because their businesses are running at 10, 20% 
fewer people in them, which is a problem. Okay, let me try and pick up on a few of those strands. Do we have a recruitment crisis? Depends what you talk about in terms of recruitment. Do we have a crisis in terms of recruiting people into vet schools and into the profession? Right, no. more more in the business. So within the business, yes. And I call that a retention crisis, actually, rather than a recruitment crisis. Yeah. It's not across the board. So you'll hear some people saying there's a massive recruitment crisis. Others saying, do you know, I have people beating on my door to work here. So you have to try and understand why that might be. I've talked a lot about the My Matters Project, but we, we've done a lot of work around increasing well-being, reducing stress in the business. And actually, the good news is that there's some really practical things that practices can do to reduce stress. People talk a lot about, you know, oh, we have great well-being here. We, we buy people birthday cakes and, well, yeah, great. But nobody left a business because they didn't get a birthday cake, actually. Well, maybe if it wasn't chocolate, I might. But <laughs> actually, the things that make you unhappy in a business are the same across all sorts of working environments. Things like, do I understand what my job is? Do you understand how my job interacts with other people and what the pecking order is, what the, you know, who I can talk to if I need something? Are there clear lines of communication between me and other people in the organization? Can I have a good home life? And that doesn't mean the same for everybody. For some people, that might mean being able to finish at four o'clock to do something one day a week. For somebody else, they're happy to work 22 hours a day as long as they can get some support in a different way. So it's understanding individuals. So all that sort of stuff. And we've got, we've published literature on this again using research from an amazing woman called Dr. Eleanor O'Connor from Manchester University Business School. So I think you can, the good news is you can address some of these issues and it's in the power of employers to do it. And it doesn't always have to cost money. And I think that's a big positive. So when we talk about it, people go, oh, well, we need more vet schools and and maybe we do and there's brexit involved in all of that but actually we can do more to keep people we can do more to get people returning to work you're in my office now on a friday you look out of my glass bit of room and you, you see actually there's quite a lot of empty desks well the reason there's a lot of empty desks on a friday is that we have a few people work at home on fridays we have a few part-time people because they've had babies and we wanted them to come back so we let them work part-time and we we box and cocks around that so it's about that flexibility so i think that's really really important in terms of continuing to develop the the veterinary workforce um and brexit is a particular issue maybe we'll come to that separately but around retention and, and recruitment in the business the issue of salaries is a, is a really really interesting one and I often say this may or may not be true you may totally disagree with me but looking at it objectively and this isn't with my RCBS hat on because we don't regulate prices and, right, right. and salaries so I just set, put that out there but I think the only reason the veterinary profession works as a concept is because those people working in it are caring professionals who are prepared to do more work than they get paid for. I'm not saying that's right, but I think that's a fact. I think most vets work harder for less money than they probably deserve, given what they could earn elsewhere, given the amount of qualifications they've got, the amount of effort, the CPD and all of that stuff that they do. So you've got that on one side. You've got people being prepared to put in more than they get back. People don't join for the money ever. No, and they're caring professionals and it's a vocation still. On the other side, you've got animal owners who by and large are prepared to pay more than they probably can afford, prepared to pay more than maybe realistic given other expenses in their families because it's their animal and they love it. So you've got the, the love and the compassion on the one side from the veterinary profession. You've got the love and the care and the absolute commitment to animal welfare in the vast majority of cases from, from animal owners. And so those two things help glue this situation together. If you took the emotion and the compassion and the care out of that equation and you were making widgets and somebody was buying widgets, then economically sustainability wouldn't be there. Because veterinary professionals are, I mean, everybody's always amazed when I tell them how, how low veterinary salaries are. Yeah. Now, some people will say, well, that's the college's fault. You push gold standards, you make us do all this CPD, you make us reach all of these standards so that 
you know, the business becomes expensive, which I don't think is necessarily fair um, because actually, you know, you can continue to learn in all sorts of really accessible ways these days. You don't have to have all of the equipment. You know, there's, there's some work to be done, I think, about what's the minimum you can do to support good animal welfare in that case. You know, how can you work in the real world when you haven't got the ability to, to spend from A to Z on something and right. still give good quality of care to right. the animal? Obviously, on the other side, we've got amazing advances in, in veterinary technology. Um, research is doing amazing stuff. Um, referral practices doing brilliant stuff, stuff on the telly which is happening, which is out of this world. So you've got to balance that with the reality of what Mrs. Miggins can afford for her cat. Yep. And often, you know, individuals, I mean, you hear the cliche, don't you, that the, the person who comes into the practice looking like they haven't got two pennies to rub together will spend every last cent on their cat. Whereas somebody who comes in, you know, I heard a horrible story once from a vet saying that, um, you know, somebody brought in a, a dog to be put to sleep because it was cheaper to have it put to sleep than put it into kennels and we'll get another one when we get back from a holiday. Now that is an incredibly rare instance. Right, right, incredibly rare. So we're talking caricatures here but you've got everything on the spectrum between the two and how would you solve that i don't know is there an nhs for animals i mean in some ways i think pets should be on prescription because they have so much positive contribution to our mental and physical health yep. so much positive contribution i mean there's been studies all about that around companionship around exercise i mean you even have to look at the amazing work that street vet and street paws are doing to help support people without homes and looking after their dogs to, to, to realize how important that bond is but i'm afraid much as my power might be within the rcbs i haven't got the power to wave a magic wand and make that happen so i don't really understand know how we can change that what i do know is that we can we can certainly work with practices to help support retention back into back into the clinical profession having said all of that one thing I know from my mymatters work is that there are some people for whom working clinical practice is not right for them right. and we shouldn't force them to stay in that we should also reflect and celebrate the wonderful diversity of veterinary roles that there are which people can still use all of their veterinary qualifications. So the research roles, the science roles, the educational roles. Um, we've got vets in amazing places all around the world who aren't doing that day-to-day clinical work. And, you know, it's not a question. I've, I've heard terrible stories from individuals who always wanted to be a vet since they were tiny. They've sacrificed a lot. Their family sacrificed a lot. They recognize that clinical practice isn't for them. And they literally are thinking about rather not being rather than not being a clinical practitioner. Right. And I think we need to all be supportive of that and not have this idea that, well, if you're not in clinical practice, you're not a real vet. And I hear that all the time. And I hear all the time, oh, your counsellor full of people who aren't real vets. Well, we've got some people running massive vet schools, multi-million pound businesses, and they're using their veterinary skills and all of the amazing things that they've been taught at vet school. That comes back to us being tied into this image identity of being the James Herriot thing, doesn't it? Like, totally. Whereas... Any other degree that you do, your degree, for example, is background was not in marketing, yet you spent a career in marketing. And, and I feel the same way with, with my career having started out as a vet and done that for 20 years. Now it's a case of, okay, what else? What else can we do? I wanted to circle back to some of the retention strategies that you mentioned from the Mind Matters. So flexibility you touched on that one. Were there any others that you, that are, you know, maybe some of the easier ones to implement and then, you know, any of the impactful ones to implement if they're different? Yeah. I mean, I think there's retention within the business and then there's getting people back into work if they've had a break for some kind. So one of the things that we're looking to do, we haven't done it yet, but look and see if it's feasible to develop a series of practices that would be willing to support individuals who've been off out of work for a little while for whatever reason might be mental health might be a family break might be whatever because you recognize that that's really tough in terms of regaining confidence now the veterinary nurses have a different situation the veterinary nurses are often way way ahead of the veterinary surgeons partly because they're just brilliant people but also because their legislation that they work to is much more flexible than the vets so the veterinary surgeons at 1966 older hills the veterinary nurses we regulate under charter so we have much more flexibility so if you're a veterinary nurse and you've been off your register for five years or more you have to do a period of supervised practice 
you have to come do, I think it's 19 weeks. I'm sure I'll be shouted out for getting that wrong in either a practice standards practice or a veterinary nurse training practice under supervision to make sure that you build that confidence back up again. With a veterinary surgeon, you can be off the register for 40 years, walk back into practice the next day and carry on. Now, it says within the code you should not work outside your area of, of competence. So yep. obviously that's a kind of a backstop, if you like. But actually, more often, it's not going to be a question of people doing outlandish things that they're not competent to do. It's people not having the confidence to come back in at all. And it's interesting you were talking about younger veterinary surgeons not having confidence in the workplace and being worried about litigation. I was at one of our My Matters Resilience training courses recently, and there was a group of older women, my age, maybe early 50s, saying that actually their confidence was really low because they feel they've been doing the same job for 20 years and they're not pushing themselves. So you've got that business about how to, how to try and stretch yourself without compromising your professional integrity, which I think is challenging. But then with that kind of whole mindset of, you know, are people more litigatious than they were? One thing we do know from the work that we did through Vet Futures is that public has huge confidence in the veterinary profession. Right. And I think it really behoves veterinary surgeons to remember that and veterinary nurses. I talk a lot about veterinary surgeons, but all of this stuff is really relevant to the whole veterinary team. Behoves us to remember that. On the whole, veterinary surgeons are really well respected and you will be given the benefit of the doubt. People don't want to catch you out. And even when something's gone wrong, what we get on the forms that come back to us is not, I want that veterinary surgeon to be hung, drawn and quartered, is a really sad thing happened and I want to make sure that doesn't happen again. That's the important thing. And that's why from a regulatory point of view, we're trying to move the tank around to say, let's not just have standards and then wallop people if they don't meet them. Let's look much more at how to help veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses to deliver the best for their clients and animal health and welfare to start with so that we don't get to the situation when a complaint comes in. Because by that point, something's gone wrong. Yeah. You know, and it's stressful for the veterinary surgeon, the veterinary professional, the veterinary nurse, and also the animal owner. And sometimes we forget that in all of this, that there's an unhappy person there to, who they've usually lost or had an animal injured or, you know, it's not, not been a good situation for them. I'm going to circle back to maybe some of the, the mental health stuff. Just a really interesting sidebar, which people will shout at me if I don't ask you, but you have data, I assume, on the types of complaints that come in. And certainly when I was researching my book, and the Veterinary Defence Society was shared with me some of the complaints. And I know from coaching, vets generally don't make recommendations or they fear the word no and they don't see the, you know, they don't think the client will see the value in what they want to do, whether it's gold standard or otherwise. Again, there's a, a self-defeating narrative going on in a lot of vets' heads about money. How many of the complaints that you see are genuinely about money? And perhaps as a part two to that would be, you know, what are your two, three, four, five most common complaint types? Money, money can be an issue, but often is not the starting point. So money can become an issue when something went wrong. That went wrong and you're expecting me to pay for it. Right. That's often the situation. Sometimes we'll get people who say they've been charged too much. That does happen. And we don't legislate around veterinary fees unless they're excessive or unless something happens where somebody was charged for something that didn't happen or somebody overtreated. So, for example, somebody knew that the dog had terminal brain cancer but decided to do an MRI anyway. Well, you know, that kind of thing. And that, and that happens rarely. Um, so you've got that sort of situation. I think our complaints are categorised by our, our team into various areas to do with common things, but it's kind of rather the things around practice standards or um, communication. Communication tends to underpin a lot of them though so pretty much under all of them there's a communications issue I think that goes without saying we did do some work a couple of years ago could be more now around the top 10 areas for complaint now bear in mind these are different from the things that will get you to a disciplinary I'll come back to that later so some of the common areas for complaint are really common things euthanasia often and it's it's because the communication was poor it didn't happen the way people were expecting right pre-purchase examinations of equines big area of issue out of hours 
poor communication around that. Handoffs between different practices. Handoffs between different practices, lack of communication. I'm trying to think what some of the others were now. They're kind of, my, my memory's failing me. There was about 10 of them, different areas, and they were mostly really common things. And that was, again, quite good news. It's like common stuff happens commonly. And if you address these things. Then we can train on We that can basis. train on that stuff. So that's important. When you get to looking at what we take through a disciplinary, so I think this is where some of the stress comes up. People think that if you have a complaint about you, it's like the Monopoly board, you will go straight to prison, do not pass go, do not collect your £200. It's not how it works. Our legislation is quite old, which means that we worked at something called serious professional misconduct. So in order to get removed from the register, you have to meet that quite high threshold. So the sorts of cases that end up going to disciplinary are where somebody has acted willfully with poor conduct. So it may be that they've lied about something. So often what you might hear is somebody did something that was relatively, it was a a mistake. Sure, we all make mistakes, absolutely all make mistakes. But instead of fessing up to the mistake and dealing with it, they, they lied about it. And then that becomes dishonesty, which ding, that will take you straight, straight through all of the hoops. Anything to do with a criminal conviction, things we've had fraudulent insurance claims, those sorts of things. And those are things that people know they're doing wrong. So I think a lot of veterinary surgeons worry that they've done something that they haven't even realized was wrong. I think most of the time, if it's going to take you to disciplinary, you know you've done it wrong. And that's still salvageable because if you talk to your clients about it, talk to your colleagues about it and work out a plan, most of the time that can be sorted out. So one of the things that we're really keen on is try and reduce that culture of people not feeling that they can share. Back to that closed-minded stuff that we were talking about at the beginning. If, if I feel open to talk about something that's gone wrong and learn from it, chances are it's not going to go any further. Right. Um, but people tend to get worried about the small number of cases. And I would really urge people to look at the disciplinary cases that, that we have and to try and think, okay, in what situation could I have done that wrongly we have the odd one where it's something more common and that ruffles a few feathers and you know that will happen but on the whole it's something quite extreme now the flip side of that is you have a lot of animal owners where they feel something generally has gone wrong but it's not going to meet our threshold which is really high now we can't change our legislation very easily and certainly at the moment with brexit and everything you know you join the back of the queue so we proactively decided to do something about that by launching a couple of years ago our veterinary client mediation service which is um, something to deal with kind of complaints or concerns where there's definitely something in it but it's never going to reach a disciplinary hearing so we take it out of our system we don't let it clutter up our system which inevitably slows down all the things that need to be dealt with more speedily the serious stuff we send it to this this independent organization so it's actually a legal firm knuckles who run this for us we pay for it you have to agree to take part. So both the, the vet or the nurse and the, the client has to agree to take part. And it's a mediation service. Sometimes there may be a small financial payment. Sometimes it's a question of saying, I'm sorry, or just people just wanting to know what went wrong. That's right, really that's common. that's what they want, isn't it? So now we have quite a lot of complaints go through that situation. So they are either referred from here, the college, or a veterinary surgeon can take them directly there, or a client can take them directly there. And that's a way of us getting some sort of closure, to use that horrible expression, and things that were never going to hit our conduct threshold. Otherwise, I think we could be accused of, of not necessarily doing the right thing by clients. And ultimately, although we're a bit of a funny hybrid body, we, we do have to make sure we are there in the public interest. And um, we're the only Royal College that's also a regulator, which gives us a lot of leeway to do things in a more progressive way. But ultimately, if we don't get that core regulatory bit right, then government will close our doors and that'll be the end of that. Then we have a far greater problem <laughs> to be working with. <laughs> I just wanted to touch back on, so just the retention strategy. So obviously that was a nice segue segue within it just because it's nice to know, okay, like not having the stress of a complaint and worrying about that, knowing what things generally end up as and knowing that, okay, you're going to at some point get a complaint, but it's not the end of the world. You're not going to go to jail mostly if you're, if you're honest. And even then 
that's a very long way off. What always struck me, actually, when I was a young doctor, people always used to say, if you get through your first year without a complaint, then you, you should be fine. And actually, the evidence doesn't support that at all. And, and so that for graduates... That thought is, you know, there's no correlation at all with. No, I think when when Sunday Trees, Lord Trees, as I should now call him to to give him due respect, um, was our president. Um, I'm trying to remember the details, but he, I remember he did some work looking at complaints, and I th- I think that his rationale was that you would probably get one complaint every 15 years of practice, so it will happen at some point. And you know, our data actually shows it tends to be older people who get the complaints, although. Within that, it may well be that they are taking responsibility for a systemic issue within the practice. So it's hard to kind of quite un- unpick that maybe. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, do you know, I, 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 I hate having things go wrong. And, and I, you know, as an individual, none of us like that. And having a complaint about you is, is, is really, really tough, really, really tough. So I don't want to pretend that stress doesn't happen. We absolutely know it does. And we're reviewing, we've got a project that we're looking at the moment to review the impact of our complaints process on mental health. So while we have Mind Matters that looks at all of the other stuff, I think one of my key jobs coming in as a CEO was to try and bring some of that learning back into the core. So how can we mitigate that while still maintaining a robust, rigorous process? So looking at the tone of voice of our letters, the support networks that we post people to, even little things like trying to make sure we don't send people a letter that will land on a Friday so they don't have the whole weekend to sweat before they can speak to somebody. You know, little things like that can make a big difference. And we don't always get it right. And there'll be lots of examples, I'm sure, where people say, oh, well, that happened and that didn't work. But we, we're trying we to get there and to look at all of those aspects so that we can really try and mitigate that and, and better communicate what it means to have a complaint against you. On the other side of that, we, it is a legal process. We do have to do it in a formal way. The client gets copied on all sorts of information, you know, and we have to make sure we do it properly because when the letter comes in, we don't know on face value which way that's going to go. So that's a challenge and that's a challenge for our teams here. So for example, we make sure we, we give our teams here mental health awareness training to help with dealing with veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses who might be under stress and also the owners. We've just had a course for some of our complaints handlers around um, dealing with individuals who are struggling with pet bereavement. You know, this sort of thing is really, really important, both to make sure that we can offer a, a good service to our, I hate to state to call them clients, but our stakeholders of various, right. but, but also to keep our teams safe so that they're not unduly stressed because we can only deliver a good service for the profession and the public if, if our people are feeling well supported themselves so you know we for example we've got a great place to work um well-being kind of ambassador award to really reflect all the hard work that we do with our teams here to make sure that we've got good well-being good mental health as well and that's uh, i guess that's what you some of these things are what you mean by when you talk about this concept of being a compassionate regulator yeah so trying to really understand the emotional impact of everything that we do while still maintaining the fairness the robustness it's really difficult it's a real challenge and making sure that we we recognise that what's in the best interests of animal welfare, which I think is the one thing that everybody can agree on, is making sure that people are able to meet the standards that we set. There's no point setting a standard if you can't meet it. Regulation as a thing, as a tool, is is it's a means to an end. Yeah. And the end is making sure that animals have good quality care. Everybody can sign up to that, I think. So then the extrapolation back from that is, okay, what can we do in terms of supporting vets with, with leadership skills, with, with mental health and awareness courses, with research that, that looks at what the next generation needs, with the big project that we're doing around graduate outcomes at the moment to help make vets feel that the career that they're going into, that they're well equipped for. All of that stuff that we do as a Royal College that regulates the quality improvement programs that we do with our companion charity, RCVS Knowledge, all of that stuff is leading towards making sure 
ensure that we enable vets and nurses to be the best that they can be. And the compassionate part of that, I think, is then saying, and if people can't do that straight away, that's okay. If they make a mistake, we'll deal with that in a compassionate way. We'll encourage people to deal with each other compassionately so that they can learn from things. We'll encourage people not to feel that they can't rejoin the profession because they're worried about how that might be perceived and that actually everybody will try and work with each other to make sure that we have the best days that we can. Now, it's a really Pollyanna-ish thing to say and I know that in vast majority of cases, you know, we all struggle with stuff but it's that business about trying to understand where you're coming from, why that person made that mistake that day, why they did that and unpick that a little bit and treat all, treat us all as, as human beings rather than a regulated professional being seen as this sort of... <laughs> person who's standing on a pedestal right it almost sounds a little bit like air crash investigations where it's rather and i think um our previous guest tim davis from the raf you know they adopt a very much a no blame culture when it comes to aviation safety where it's just it's an open culture where anything can be discussed because everything's a learning opportunity rather than cast you cast somebody out i mean obviously there's a level of error where the dishonesty is a values call that, that clearly there's a set of values and there's a code you sign up to if you want to be a veterinary profession that that makes sense. It sounds like you're trying to do something, not necessarily the same, but something similar and, and treat it as that. As well, we are. So we talk about trying to replace blame culture with a more of a learning culture. And, and people say, well, how how can you have a no blame culture? You're a regulator. Somebody has to take the rap. And it's trying to understand the difference between blame which is saying you did something wrong and, and putting a judgment around it and accountability which right. is saying yes you did something what wrong or are we going to do something about it next and making it more objective yeah, there's the act and then there's what comes next exactly and blame is is blame and shame is about emotional response about loaded responsibility now that's not to say that the human re- reaction to something that's got wrong in practice the first thing that people might think is i blame you for that and the first thing the person who might feel who did the wrong thing was i feel ashamed of that and that's fine but you have to park it and move on from it really, really quickly. Right, it's emotion, it will pass. Yeah, and I think to to think, well, I feel like that, that means I'm a bad person or I'm never going to get any better at this stuff is, is rubbish. Right, there's your story that comes on from the emotion which doesn't exactly. serve you. So then you, you can you park that and then you move on really, really quickly. And I think that's I think that's really important. And there's a sort of a story that's kind of allied to this. Maybe it's a bit of a red herring, but um, Alistair Campbell came to do a talk at one of our early Mind Matters sessions at SPIVS Congress one year. And obviously people know him from his politics, but he's also a really strong mental health campaigner. And we were talking about getting people back into the workplace, how you work with people who are struggling with their mental health. And this, can I paint a little bit of backstory on Alistair Campbell just before, uh, because I know our American audience will have no idea who we're talking about but he was basically the the comms the chief spin, head, doctor. The chief spin doctor for tony blair's labor government um very very prominent massive influence in in british politics and then he did he had a, an absolute mental implosion didn't he and, and effectively his mind in his own words i think just shattered and then put himself back together so all right back to you thank you for that i should have put that in and he'd had mental health issues and interestingly um so his father was a veterinary surgeon so he's very attuned to what we're trying to do. So one thing he said, which I found really, really liberated, and anybody who's heard me speak before will be going, oh, no, not this story again, because I do tell it quite often, but was the idea that if somebody comes to you in the workplace and they've got mental health issue and they need some time off, it's okay for you as a manager to be fed up at that point. In the same way, if somebody came to you saying, do you know what, I broke my leg and I'm going to be off for six weeks. Your first reaction is, well, that's annoying. I've got to resort the rotors and that's really difficult and you've got clients who like you and that's a pain. And if you don't feel like that, you're probably not human. Right. But the key thing then is to park that really quickly and deal with the individual in front of you who's struggling and to be sympathetic and almost have that internal dialogue in yourself and then be compassionate. 
And I think that was, it was really liberating because it says it's okay to feel like that. That's a normal human response. But then you move on from it. And I think it's the same sort of thing when we're talking about, you know, how we deal with a mistake. Over time, that will change, hopefully, as the culture changes. But be kind to yourself about how you might feel, but make sure that what you say and how you act is really measured because that's the bit you can't take back. Right. How you feel is yours, and that's for yours to keep and only affects you, actually. Nobody else knows how you're feeling. It's how you act and what you say that then can have a big difference. Now, the other side of that, which is interesting, is that only you can also control how you feel. So it's only to you to decide how you're going to respond to something. So over time, you can learn to respond differently to things. But don't beat yourself up if you don't do that straight away, because that, that's really, really tricky. So we are trying to look at this sort of idea of reflective culture, things like we're looking at changing our CPD policy. So that rather than just saying, well, I've done 10 hours, you say, well, what, what did I learn? What was the output? Yeah. So what am I going to do next? You know, have that more reflective approach. We're looking to pilot something called Schwartz Rounds. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's something they do in the human medical side, which is training facilitators in practices to handle monthly meetings where people talk about the emotional impact of clinical practice and not just the, the clinicians with a group, but the receptionists and other people, because there's people in that team who have a massive impact on the, the health of your business. So if you might have a receptionist, a front of house person who's having to deal with the bereaved client as they're walking past. They've not had any training. They don't even know why the animal was put to sleep. They don't have any of the knowledge that you have around why that was the best decision. They're just having to deal with a really sad person. And so I think it's really important to get the whole team engaged in that stuff as well. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a phrase that's not been associated with well, and medicine second, second medicine victim so much, as well. but it's, it's coming in now yeah. more people are starting to talk about this as, you know, there is a traumatic impact of having to see the things that we see. I'm going to move into a rapid fire right now. As long as you let me tell you the real reason I became the chief executive at the RCBF. Oh, yeah. Go. There's, there's two narratives here. So one narrative of my career trajectory is that I always thought I was going to be a vet. My brother's a veterinary surgeon. They filmed a lot of the James Herriot series on the farm where I grew up. My dad was a farm manager up in Yorkshire. I did all my science A-levels, went to see practice, absolutely hated it, was emotionally devastated by most of it and actually quite squeamish. Decided I didn't want to do that. Went to do an English degree instead. Ended up doing journalism, public relations, marketing and animal health, been going to BSAVA Congress for the last 25 years, probably more than most veterinary surgeons. So ended up working alongside this wonderful profession and also agriculture, animal health, working in IT and telco for year 2000 virus and the dot-com bubble. So been through all of that sort of nonsense. Came to the college, was asked to come here, look after comms, la la la. My boss left and I decided to stand for the job as chief executive. So it's kind of a normal trajectory. The underlying narrative, though, which I think is a much nicer one, is that I've always tried to annoy my brother, who's three years older than me. So when he was seven years old and he decided he wanted to follow in James Harriet's footsteps and become a veterinary surgeon, I was four years old. I decided I wanted to be the chief executive of his regulator just to annoy him. When you were actually that age, that would have been so good. <laughs> and that, that makes you realise that there was, there was fake news. That was fake news. But it would have been funny if that had been true. I love it. I love it. I have a younger sister who was three years behind me and she went through Glasgow vet school as well. I'm sure she was just doing it to chase me around and just continue to annoy me in that way that little sisters do. Love you, Jen. Don't really mean yeah, it. Yeah, that's my, my, my main focus in life. My brother is a wonderful, wonderful person. I'm not trying to annoy him at all. And he's a fantastic horse pet. That's brilliant. I love it. Quick fire questions then, and you can take them or you know, go short or long, wherever you want. First question, what are you most proud of in your career and why? And my the latter part of my career, I think probably the My Matters Initiative. I have talked about it a lot endlessly. I'm very passionate about it, as you probably recognise. 
I had no background in mental health at all. I was basically given a million pounds in five years to go and sort this problem out. My background was in communications. It was very stressful, actually, for me, ironically, given the subject matter. So I had to learn an awful lot. And, and it really showed me how much you need to learn, absorb, change, be brave. Lots of people said it wouldn't work. You're hypocritical because the college is a source of stress. You're never going to change everybody's minds. There's, there's 101 reasons. And it's like, I think it's Churchill, that thing that if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks, you'll never move down the footpath. And, you know, we had to just move forward on that. And I'm naturally, innately, a really cautious person. So that was quite tough for me. But now we get to the point where people will literally unbidden come up to me and say, you know, because we did some of your training and I sought help and my matters to save my life. Yeah, I see. Which it, is amazing. Uh, on, the, on the Twitter, on your Now Twitter feed. we still, I mean, the profession is still losing people and that is hideously sad, hideously sad. And there's always more we can do. I mean, so, so much more. And it's every time you lose someone, you think, what's the point of this? Are we, are we making a difference? We're not. And you kind of put your head in your hands and, and then you regroup and say, no, we are making a difference. So I think that for me has been really important. And now the challenge, as I said before, is trying to bring some of that learning around culture into the core of what we do as a regulator, which is yet more challenging again. Let's throw it out there because Mind Matters is an incredible project and resource. Where can veterinary surgeons go to find out more and engage with the resource? Yeah, so so Mind Matters has got three three prongs of activity. Our website, vetmindmatters.org, has got all of the information on there. We have work around what we call prevent. So looking at what is it that causes mental health issues and how can we try and stop that in the first place? Because you can carry on sticking a Band-Aid on forever and ever not going to go anywhere so things like the work that i've mentioned around um, stress reduction well-being in the practice environment destigmatization looking at student well-being we're having a round table later in the year later in the year on student well-being around research so all of that big picture stuff the next stream is called protect so while we sort out the big picture stuff which takes a while how can we tool people up to be be safer in their working environment so resilience courses bsavio have been brilliant supporting a lot of this stuff and we've got a task force of, of lots of different organizations bsavio have given us lots of money other people have given us lots of support things like um, mental health awareness courses mental health for managers online mindfulness all of that stuff so it's big picture stuff training courses resilience skills then you get to support which is what can we do for one-to-one for individuals now that's the bit that's tricky for us as a regulator because if i support you on your mental health today and we have a complaint about you tomorrow the member of the public could realistically think you're not going to get a fair hearing. So while we do have ways that we support people with mental health issues through our complaints process, in terms of one-to-one help, we give a, a big chunk of money every year to Vet Life, who do amazing work. They have a helpline, they have a help support service. And um, we've given seed funding to a specific project in Northern Ireland, Vet Support NI, which is a peer support service. So that's different from the Vet Health Vet Life Helpline, which is an anonymous 24-7 call. The peer support is you know who you're talking to. You have a relationship with that person in several meetings over a period of time. And there may be other things that crop up where we give that support. Um, so I would always stress if somebody needs direct support right now, don't come to Mind Matters. Go to Vet Life or go to your GP or a another source. There's a really good website actually called Hub of Hope um, where you can put your postcode in and it shows you direct support services in your local area because there's a lot of local services which vary region by region. If you want to help us support culture change, talking about mental health issues, understanding how to support your staff, tooling yourself up better with skills and knowledge, then come to Mind Matters. And I think it's really important that we make that so distinction. So there is prevention and remediation, really. Yes. And the support stuff we do financially at arm's length. Um, so we certainly are very much engaged with that. We're one of the big financial supporters of life, but we, we don't get engaged in that one-to-one. Yep. Okay. That also sounds like it answers the thing that's made the biggest impact in your career. I suppose impact's for other people to judge, isn't it? 
but I think yes, well, actually, I think let me, yes, let me it flip has. that around then and say, what's the thing that's made the biggest impact on your career? Huh. That can be a person, a thing. Gosh, lots of different things. Lots of different things. Little snapshots of things, really. I mean, so one thing that happened to me very early on in my career, which took me off, you know, it's one of those sliding door moments. So at the time I was doing, I was working for a, a niche agricultural communications PR agency. One of my clients was DuPont Chemicals, iChems, and we were working for them in the UK. Then we started working for them in Paris. And I happened to be the account manager at that point. I was 23. And then they rang us and said, would you do some work for us in the Czech Republic? Now, this was 93, 94, so just after all the revolutions happened. It was quite a Wild West place to work. And my boss, who was an incredible entrepreneur, said, yeah, of course we'll do it. Lizzie will go out and do it. And he said he was going to come with me. We were going to go out there to Prague, open an office, get our first client, get our first couple of staff members. But half an hour before we were due to leave the office in Newbury to, to fly to Prague, bear in mind, I've been brought up on a farm and never travelled anywhere. I'd only been abroad once in my life at this point. He's, his PA said to me, oh, he's not coming. You better go on your own. <laughs> so I got launched out to deal with this and ended up over a period of time building up um, five offices across Central and Eastern Europe, spending my time two weeks in Prague, a week in Budapest, a bit of time in Warsaw, Paris, all over the place, largely with, with DuPont I came, but then into MSD Agvet and animal health companies, all sorts of names you might recognize, in a culture where they're moving from communism to a command economy where public relations didn't even exist, where nobody really knew what they were doing. And it was very, very challenging. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time to do that. The coda to that story, though, is I later found out about two or three years later from my boss's PA is that he'd never booked a ticket. <laughs> but he knew me well enough to know that if he'd said go, I would have gone not on your Nelly because I'm too cautious. But if I'm signed up to do it, I won't ever let anybody down and I will go. Uh, and he knew me well enough to push me over the brink. So that actually is, um, then from that, I then came back to head up the UK business at 29. I was MD of this PR agency and probably my career went really quite quickly because I'd being brave enough to do those things, right. which has then had an impact on other stuff that I do. So that's a kind of a situational thing. In terms of people, I think one of my early bosses was an Australian footballer who was retired and then went into farming. And some of the things he said to me still stick with me. You're going to have to tell me which form of football because Aussies Australian call everything football. football. They all call it all footy. So, oh, so well, the Aussie the rules? Australian rules. Well, Aussie rules? Yes. Yeah, the gazelles so he, and tight he shorts. He was the kind of David Beckham of his day, I think. Um, I mean, he was in his 60s by the time I knew him. But he would come out with all these sporting analogies. Now, I'm not a sports person at all. So I refer back to the earlier conversation about if I can't do it, I won't play can't do sport but he would say things like one that always stuck in my mind is let that one go through to the keeper which is a cricketing expression which kind of roughly translates through to don't sweat the small stuff for your american audience and and so those little things stick in my mind for sure that has had a real impact on me and the other person that's had a massive impact on me i have to say is my father who is a, f a farmer um he just sold his sheep last year so this is the first year in since i was 14 that i haven't been doing the lambing right now so you're lucky i'm here this time last year i was up to my knees in snow helping oh, with the lambing and he He's been a great influence on me, but also a terrible influence in many ways in that he's totally committed to work, totally selfless in his work and takes it really, really seriously. And as a manager, he would always say, you need to be first out and last in. And I take away a little bit of that, which is not very popular in this day and age of, of flexible working. So I have to struggle with my feeling that I need to always be working if everybody else is working. But also he's, he's the most amazingly committed person and then generated such respect from his team. So he... Just to give you an example, he had um, a farm foreman who was 10 years his senior um, who retired and would still continue to come back and work for my dad for free. He'd pitch up to help with the sheep every morning until he died because he liked working with my dad until he was 80, 
whatever when he died you know that would be wonderful wouldn't it to, to feel that you could ever have that kind of respect from people yeah it's strong a leader yeah absolutely if you could change one thing in veterinary medicine what would it be a magic money tree say more well back to my earlier comment Take about about the idea that, that I think the veterinary profession really works because there's a lot of compassion on both sides yep. and people are working harder than they should and paying so would, more than they want to. You bring more money in so people are better rewarded. In. Yeah, I really, I mean, if you could, I know it's it's not going to happen, but I think that would, but not the it's not about the money, it's not that people do it for the money, but I think it, that the compassion is stretched thin um, and I think it would make a difference. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given i think probably um the comment that i made earlier about always comparing your your inside to somebody else's outside i think that's that is really really important i think my previous boss brian saying you know let that one go through to the keeper recognizing the things that's worth being getting worked up about and the things not i see colleagues around me investing huge emotional energy in things that in the grand scheme of things aren't going to matter tomorrow which isn't to say take a laissez-faire attitude i'm actually very much a detailed person and um, will always want things to be right but sometimes things just aren't worth getting that stressed about and often if you can unpick that as well your emotional energy relates to the fact that you're perceiving somebody reacting to you in a way they're probably not most of the time people don't care about other people around them they just don't not 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 care that's wrong it's not but they're not thinking about other people they're thinking about themselves everybody's favorite topic of conversations themselves quite that's why you get so many people wanting to do these podcasts no doubt thing to say on a podcast isn't it <laughs> so what was the the flip side to that what's the worst piece of advice you've ever received or given if you want to <sighs> oh have some fun with that do you know what it's not one a bad one or a good one but one i struggle with is saying when people say well, you should say no more because on the one hand, I think they're saying that to me because I do have a problem with work-life balance. But I also think you, no nice thing ever happened when you said no. Actually, the more you say yes to things, the more you have an open mind, a curious mind, agree to do stuff that you think you perhaps shouldn't do, go to the lecture that you're too tired to go to, um, say yes when somebody wants to have a chat with you, the more you learn from the world around you. So I think for me, it's a struggle to balance that saying no for preservation and making sure you don't sweat the small stuff with saying yes enough that you continue to be interested in the world around you. The most interesting conversations you can have are with, with older people who say yes and who are absorbing and are interested because they've got this balance of a wealth of experience and narrative, but also that curiosity, that liveliness, which, which keeps them learning. And sometimes more time. Quite. Not always. Sometimes. I'm super busy. I'm always keen on books. And actually, this is a little sign. I brought you a copy of my third oh, book there. Thank you. Thank that you. is for you. A little freshness you for your event now. What? So thank you for allowing me to spend time with you today. I'm not quite done with the questions yet. Other than that fine piece of prose I've just handed you, what's your other favourite book? <laughs> Gosh, my favourite book. Oh, this one, of course. Or or most, you know, the, the book you've read recently that's, and let's, you know, you, you, you can choose the genre, but that's had the... Uh, a positive impact on you that's really moved you gosh so i don't read much non-fiction i'm a fiction girl because i i read mainly for escapism escapism right it's definitely the thing that i will do i have a long commute i have four hours a day of commuting so i do a lot of reading and mainly it's stories but the susan kane book that i mentioned earlier about introversion i think it's a really important one let me just spend a minute on that if you'll just humor me so it's it's not just about introverts it's called quiet and it's about the power of understanding your behavior in the world and how it impacts on other people. And the thing that she really points out, which I think is fascinating, is that current society values extrovert behavior above all else. So the person who can orate the best, the person who can contribute best in a, a brainstorm or ask the best questions in a conference forum, 
all that sort of stuff. But actually, if you think about real milestones of thinking, no brilliant idea ever came up a brainstorm. I'm sorry. I mean, I hold enough of them, but they just don't. It's incremental and something might spark, but usually it's somebody who brings something into the room. You know, it's people who sit in garages, people who sit in labs, people who sit on their own thinking, 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 thinking. And they're often introverted people. Now, social media is brilliant and it allows introverted people to speak with the voice of an extrovert sometimes because it gives you that tool to do things in your own time and your own pace. People who would be terrified to have a phone conversation are quite happy on Twitter. And, and I'm one of those people. I'm for a communications person. Ironically, I'm not great at typical communications. Um, so as a shout out to all of us out there who who have the skills of a, an introverted mind, but the massive impact that we can all have in society, I think that's definitely a good book to read. I've also just finished reading Shella Barmer's autobiography, Becoming, which is amazing, actually, and not something that I would necessarily pick up to read, but I'm in a book group and they suggested it. So you do the thing. And that is brilliant because it really talks about the importance of diversity. And that's something that we're looking at from a college point of view. But until you have lived it, I speak as a middle class, Oxbridge educated woman. Okay, unpick that a little bit. I'm from a working class family in the north of England, went to a comprehensive school. So there's all of that, but still a very privileged position. And until you really read and understand what it was like to grow up in a, a difficult area of Chicago and, and how that affects all of your behavior throughout your life, I don't think you can really understand. You know, there's the thing about checking your privilege, but actually really trying to understand how people feel. So, so we're looking at diversity from a college point of view. And there's a really interesting quote, um, which I heard recently at a webinar around diversity um, from Jude Kelly who is an artistic director I think more re most recently she was artistic director at the South Bank and she said it's not enough to say the door's open anybody is welcome but people need to see people on the other side of the door that look like them so we really need to work hard at that as a college and for a long time we felt that the thing we need to tackle within the profession was getting a broader diversity of people into the profession but more recently with some of the stuff that's been going on I don't know if you've been following the Empath Eban story but actually it's not just getting people into the profession but making sure they're properly supported within that profession so Michelle Obama's book Susan Cain's book brilliant society is changing and it's just about reflecting absolutely you know, you and, and doing that in a really active way right yeah right if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would it be? Nobody cares that you only got a 2-1. <laughs> just graduate. Yeah, just Get graduate. Crack on with it. <laughs> I had a suspicion you might say that. <laughs> now, you, you might want to let this one go through at the keeper. I don't know. But what's the most controversial thing people don't know about you but really matters? So, had we been talking 10, 15 years ago, I would have whispered that I was a vegetarian. Because I think, I know, I can see your vegan t-shirt. So I think that time people would have been like, what are you doing in a veterinary job? In fact, you know, when I first joined people, I like, well, don't tell anybody that because, you know, we've got farming vets and they won't appreciate that. So that used to be a kind of a secret. I've been vegetarian since I was 16. The reason why is because I was brought up on a sheep farm and I didn't like doing the lambing and then eating the sheep. And there's something about the smell of a lamb under a hot lamp that's remarkably like roast lamb. Yeah, not good. So I set off not eating the lamb and then stopped eating everything else. But nowadays, being vegetarian is normal. Being a vegan is a little bit more cutting edge, but increasingly normal. So given that that's not a spooky secret anymore, maybe the fact that I've got an arts degree and I'm working with scientists, that makes you a bit like the cat in the community of dogs, doesn't it? I, I love it, right? I mean, that is the central thing I'm riffing on at the minute is how art, can help balance our science and the two really we shouldn't we shouldn't be afraid of putting them together so no i think it's brilliant all right last question then you're a twitter girl so we'll go with twitter so if you could send one tweet and every phone in the world could light up with it what would it say do one nice thing for somebody else today and go outside is that too long 
I said perfect right as you said the word. <laughs> I'm always pushing for a bit more. <laughs> it's all in the timing. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me up here today. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. If anyone wants to continue a conversation with you, I don't want to invite an, an enormous deluge onto your desk of work, but I really think the the initiatives that you've driven, you know, I, I, w- I went to Australia in 2009 and was watching, you know, really from the sidelines of what's happening in the UK. But it's obvious to me that, that you and the team that are working here, there's a difference. And I think what you've discussed and you've been talking about today starts to put some dimensions around what you are doing here and, and and I think how important it is to to everybody. The word you used earlier was stakeholders and, and it's not just to vets, it's to people within the clinical teams and non-clinical teams, the animals, the pet owners. So thank you very much for the work you do and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And just one, if I can just say one final thing is that obviously this conversation is between me and you. So I've talked a lot about the stuff that I've been doing, but none of it is possible without the amazing team at Belgravia House and our really supportive council members and of course the profession at large. Thank you. Folks, just before you jump off away from the podcast, three things. Number one, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes if you've not done so already or shout us out on Facebook, Instagram or the social media platform of your choice. Thing two, if you like the show, show some love, show some support and represent by getting one of our fabulous new t-shirts or laptop stickers in the swag store on drdavenickel.com. We will ship anywhere in the world. And thirdly, and absolutely not lastly, thank you so much to Lizzie for being an astonishingly good guest. So from all of you in veterinary medicine, please keep being awesome. You are wonderful people. And until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out. 